The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks so much for joining us for another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. I, of course, would like to wish everybody a, a really wonderful Memorial Day and, and say thank you to our vets, um, men and women who help us to sleep at night and keep us safe. We thank you so much. Uh, if you're listening to the show today and you want to give a call in and speak directly to our guest, we would love to hear from you. And you can do so by dialing 888-329-3306. That's 888 888- 329-3306. And be sure to visit our website at womentowatch.net to check out our um, our lineup and um, all of our events and, and other good things going on. So I am thrilled today to have uh, a really lovely, wonderful, successful woman with us this afternoon. She's calling in, uh, I believe, from L.A. this afternoon. Her name is Lisa Roth. And Lisa is the Vice President and Creative Director for CMH Label Group, and she's also founder of a company called Rockabye Baby, which is um, a very cool concept. It's a company that produces lullaby renditions of classic rock songs. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. And you are joining us on a holiday. I appreciate that. Um, and, and as you said uh, before the show, it's, it's very quiet on your end and quiet on my end, but hopefully we have a lot of people tuning in to hear your story. So, I hope so. So let's do this. Let's start with um, your growing up years and your background. And I did a little bit of homework on you, and, and we spoke actually a few months ago and had a, a lovely conversation. Um, and I understand you were born in Indiana, the middle of three children. Um, you have a younger sister and an older brother. And dad was actually a very famous ophthalmologist. Um, talk about those years growing up and what that was like. Well, I was, my brother and I were born in Indiana. By the time my sister was born, we were in California. But before that, my father um, was from Indiana. He went to medical school in Indiana and then um, did his residency in Massachusetts. So we left Indiana when I was very young, two or three years old, and we moved to Massachusetts. We lived in Swampscott, which was just north of Boston, and in Brookline, Massachusetts. And having a father who was in medical school was a wonderful way to learn how to have no fear for shots and doctors (laughs) in general. Good. practiced on us. All our boosters were given to us at home in the kitchen. (laughs) We, from my earliest memories, went on rounds with our father. Wow. And he taught us to have no fear of doctors and to ask questions until you feel comfortable with the answers you got. 
and I'm, I'm being light about it, but I can't tell you how important that is and how many people I know don't feel like they can do that. But anyway, so we lived in Massachusetts, and then my father set up his practice in Pasadena, California. Mm-hmm. So that's where we went when I was six years old. And my sister was born there. And that's where I did my growing up, what I consider my hometown. Right. Pasadena, California. And tell me, uh, your mom, what, what did she do? My mother was an artiste. She was all things aesthetic. She was a very creative woman. She did interior decorating. She painted. She sculpted. She loved museums. Um, She was a very creative woman. And my father, though he was a scientist per se, an eye surgeon, a retinal specialist, he also was an actor and a writer, and he owned an equity waiver theater in Pasadena where he produced and directed plays. So I came from a family that definitely uh, valued education, but also equally valued the arts, all arts, music, theater, film, even television, all of it. So that so that obviously was a big big part of your background. And one of the things um, that I read was I love this story. Um, your your dad, I'm sure, had a, a great influence on you. And as you mentioned, he had quite an eclectic career. Um, I, I think that's fairly unusual to ha- to be a surgeon, to be an ophthalmologist, and also be an actor and a writer. Um, and and be involved in as many things as he was, and also um, interested in real estate uh, investment. So he was not around a lot. And I think whenever um, whenever I, I talk to people who had a parent or, or perhaps both parents that tended to not be available as often um, as they would have liked because of career, it leaves an impact. And you talk about a story um, – and your love of peanut butter. And oh. I, you know, why? I just thought that was so sweet because it's a memory that you have. It's an experience that you have that ended up, I'm sure at the time, seeming very simple, but staying with you for a very long time. Can you tell that story? That is so funny. You did do your homework. <laughs> I, I always did. say that, you know, I love tattoos. I would never get one myself because I couldn't think of one thing that I would love as much the day I get it and still love it 52 years later. The only thing I could think of is peanut butter. It is the <laughs> one thing I have loved my whole life. But a tattoo of a little jar of peanut butter, I don't know, not so interested. But my father was in he went to medical school after he had two children which is unusual mm-hmm. and so medical school you're gone you're just gone and he would come home one 24 hour day a week and we started a tradition when he would come home he would pull out what we had then which were 
tins of peanut butter, like buckets, um, tins that had circus animals on them. And he would pull out the tin of peanut butter. He'd put me on his lap. He'd hand me a spoon. He'd grab a spoon, and he'd point to the animals on the tin. And if I named the animal correctly, I got to stick my spoon in the peanut butter and eat it. And if I got it wrong, he got to eat the peanut butter. And I lived for those days. It was Mm. a tradition that we had, and it was um, a very treasured intimacy I had with my father at a very, very, very early age. And I want to tell you, after I wrote that story, a co-worker, the receptionist here at the label, went on eBay and found the tin and bought it for me. And I'm sitting here looking at it. Wow. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Dead peanut butter. Yep. And we're talking a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) Not that long ago. Not that long ago. But I did not know that peanut butter originally came in tin cans. I did not know that. Yeah. So I have a very long, strong love of peanut butter. Yeah. Tell me what um, some some advice that your dad gave you when you were young that, that has stayed with you. Oh, my gosh. You know, I always think about that. I don't have a lot of little nuggets, but I remember him always saying, your health is everything. Without your health, you have nothing, Mm -hmm. which it took a long time to really absorb, but I believe that. Um, To pay attention to detail, to be curious. He taught all of us to be curious. Um, and to educate yourself, learn, read, uh, talk to people, have conversations, be inquisitive. Um, those were all things that I think generated from my dad, and they're all things that have carried me through my life. And it is, it's great advice to live with a curiosity in life, mm-hmm. I think, is, is really a wonderful um, outlook to have. It, you know, it can lead to all kinds of opportunities. Um, one of the other things that I would say was probably a large part of your childhood was the time you spent, you had an uncle, your Uncle Manny Roth, who owned a cafe in Greenwich Village. And as a kid, um, this is not something I think that would be very mainstream or typical for a lot of young kids. You got to hang out there and meet some musicians uh, such as Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, Richard Pryor. That is a very cool, fun atmosphere to be around. I, I wanted to know if that kind of contributed to your um, your comfortableness, I'll say, being around superstars, people who are high profile. Did that kind of lend itself to your feeling not being in such awe when you had the opportunity to meet people like that? Well, I have an answer to the question what um, what sort of got rid of the awe, but I like your version of my uncle's Cafe Wa experience more than the reality. So let me okay. <laughs> win. <laughs> okay. The reality is my Uncle Manny opened the Cafe Wa in the village in the late 50s, mm-hmm. and he... Um, 
he was one of the first places where huge names like you mentioned, Jimi Hendrix, who was known as Jimmy James and the Blue Flames back then, Richard Pryor, who he managed for a while, um, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan came in and needed a job, so my uncle gave him a job washing dishes and had him up on stage on the open mic night and is very proud in telling the story that he was convinced that this guy was going to go nowhere, that he couldn't sing at all. <laughs> um, all of these stories. My brother and I visited him, but I, I was very young and mm-hmm. didn't, did not meet all these people. But I had the experience of going down those stairs into that dark, noisy, wonderful place in the 60s in the village and um, experiencing something that a lot of kids don't get to experience. As I got older, I realized uh, what a big deal it was and what my uncle had created. And I asked him many years later if he knew then what he had going on he said he didn't have a clue he was just trying to make a dime Mm -hmm. and i think that's often the experience you can be a part of a movement or an era or something big but as you're going through it you really don't have a concept of it um was it ever was it scary ever lisa i mean to be you know that kind of environment can sometimes be um Oh, my gosh, no. No? Okay. My uncle carried me down those stairs, held me, held our hands. He made us feel special. He told us we could order whatever we wanted with a snap of our finger. So for months, I practiced snapping my finger (laughs) as a four-year-old. Right. Um, And never scary. Good. Just exciting. I think it was a seminal experience for my brother, who was three years older than me, and he knew at that point he just wanted to be a part of that scene. Whatever that was in our immature perception, he wanted to be a part of it. And, in fact, he um, put his initials in one of the um, banisters down there. Mm -hmm. And 50 years later came back with his band, that he had played with for many years. He did become a recording artist and came back with Van Halen, who he was the lead singer with, and played the club um, 50 years later. And his initials are still in that banister. That's a great story. And and my uncle was in the audience in his 90s, back at the club he had built. And it was a wonderful full circle experience yeah is it still there sure oh good under different ownership but yes it's there it has a very long rich history in the village and what year was that 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 he went and played there 2012 2012 not that long ago no he went back um i think it was just prior to one of their world tours and um and it was very special but you mentioned finding comfort around celebrity, there has been a lot of opportunity to be around celebrity in my family. Yes. But most importantly, my brother, who 
I grew up with and who was just my big brother. Um, and so I got to see not only the hard work involved in obtaining the level of recognition that he obtained, but to me, he was the brother I fought with. He was the brother that drove me crazy. He was the brother who teased me. He was <laughs> your typical brother, right? A typical, typical brother. sibling relationship, and you know that's every celebrity's story. They're that's just right. people, Ooh, and that's right. warts and all. Right. And um, and I saw it in action. Well, let me ask you, and if just for the listeners, we're talking about David Lee Roth, uh, lead singer of Van Halen, who happens to be Lisa's brother. And were there parts of that? Because here's the difference. While, yes, celebrities and musicians um, are people, the being in the limelight and having that kind of visibility and exposure is different from us regular folks. Um, were there parts of that that you wish, you know, were not the case? Or, or were you comfortable with it as well? Um, that is a little bit of a complex answer, um, and I'll do it quickly. First of all, I watched, um, I watched it happen slowly. It wasn't like we graduated from high school, he became famous. Right. It was, this was pre-The Voice, pre-American Idol, pre-YouTube, when bands hit the pavement five, six sets a night at every bar around every county of Southern California, year after year after year after year. And um, so it was very gradual. It was the result of a lot of hard work, and the fame came gradually. So it wasn't even something where I went, oh, now he's famous. It, it wasn't as severe as that. Yeah. So yeah. that was a good thing. However, there are things that come with fame that affect the people surrounding you, including family. Yes. Um, you know, it, it's something that prefaces um, myself everywhere I go, whether it's interviewing, interview and I introduced him today yes um, because it was relevant to what we're talking about and it's something I'm proud of mm -hmm. but it tends to be Lisa Roth David Lee Roth's brother not a problem sometimes it gets your foot in the door <laughs> but, right. yes but sometimes you want ownership of something you've done without that acknowledgement exactly um, and you know, for the most part, it's something I'm very proud of and excited for him. And, uh, and you know, I learned early on, my brother was very popular in high school. He was very good looking. He was a singer back then. And um, I remember girls, when I started high school, he was a senior. And all of these seniors were coming up to me, girls wanting to be my friends. And I thought, well, this is really neat. <laughs> and my brother took me aside. He said, you have to be careful. And a 
understand why certain people want to be your friends. Sometimes oh. it has nothing to do with you. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Look at him recognizing that at, you know, at that so age. It was a very early lesson. Yes. Um, a good lesson. It can make you a little cynical where you question why people want to know you or Mm -hmm. are they truly interested in what I'm saying. On the other hand, it is part of who I am. It's part of my story. And as a result, I've had some very unique and colorful experiences that inform who I am. So there you have it. Yeah. Well, well, you're so right. I mean, everything you just said is – is exactly right. That is, you can't really talk about you, who you are, your life story, and not um, and not mention that. That's a part of it. Um, he's your brother, but of course, I do want to talk about you today. And one of the one of the, I, I read a quote, and um, I think this probably says a lot about who you are and how you live your life. Um, you said, "To this day, I always look beyond the apparent for the deeper meaning, to see what's not being shown." and to hear what's not being said. Tell me how that shows up in your work and and in your personal life. Wow. Yeah, you just hit on, I think, the essence of who I am. And I will preface it by saying it's not an easy way to walk through the world. (laughs) I am a very sensitive person. Um, and I thrive and crave getting to the bottom line truth of everything, whether it's a conversation, a business problem, um, an issue a person is having. Um, I am compelled to drill down and get to the fundamental truth of things. And it is a wonderful skill to have quite often, but it can be exhausting and difficult (laughs) for the people around you if they're not on board. And I have had to learn when to um, move in that direction and when to pull back. I think part of it comes just naturally the way you're born and wired. I'm very sensitive to every stimulus around me, Um, and a lot of it is learned. Um, There are many things that have happened in my life um, that have caused me to be discerning and sensitive, and like you said, hearing what's not being said, seeing what's, you know, um, not being shown, Um, So I think it's a combination of nature-nurture, but it's where I thrive in Mm. my personal life, at work. I don't know if that answers your question, but... Well, it does, and I guess I'm wondering if that, um, as you mentioned, I think a lot of things often are shaped both in, you know, prior to birth and then, of course, life experience. Mm-hmm. And wanting to always, wanting things to be open and transparent and, and truthful often comes from an experience where things were not. Mm. And I'm wondering if that was the case for you. Um, you know, I, what just popped in my head, I'm thinking defining moments. And yes. we all have them, and hopefully we continue to have them throughout life. 
sometimes they're big and wonderful and sometimes they're very painful but those are the ones where the biggest lessons come from Mm -hmm. and one of the earliest defining moments for me was when my mother um, had a horseback riding accident and suffered um, a traumatic brain injury and I was 14 years old, 13 going on 14, which is a very sensitive time for a young girl. Mm-hmm. And my mother showed horses. She had a jumping accident, suffered a brain injury. And I look at my life as pre-horse accident and post-horse accident. Mm. Um, my mother survived and um, the woman that came home was not the mother I knew. And for people who don't know about traumatic brain injuries, there are very typical um, side effects, and one of them is personality change. And the woman came home was not the mother I looked forward to seeing every day when I came home from school, and it was very difficult. My parents split up, and my family scattered, scattered, and her accident was like a bomb being dropped in the middle of our family. Mm. And I was on my own. Uh, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And so you hone skills that help you survive. Right. And very often those skills carry you through life in a valiant way. And sometimes those skills that are lifesavers become um, harmful later in life. Mm -hmm. But I feel like my... um, Everything we talked about, my desire for honesty, getting to the truth, my ability to hear and see and understand the big picture, um, uh, we're all survival skills, probably. Not all. Like I said, we're born with the capacity for that. That's where I lean. Right. But I think I really honed them starting then. Would you say that there, when that... Um when that accident happened, was there not a lot of discussion around it? In other words, was it something that was remaining private from those around you? And and that sometimes, in other words, when there's a tragedy um, and it's not faced head on and, and spoken about, especially for young children, it, it really can lead to a lot of anxiety and, and questioning and, and unknowing. And... Um, so I'm wondering if that's what was the case. And so then because you experienced that as a young girl, you kind of um, yearn for that as an adult. I love your question. Thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Um, um, I, I, think, I think you're right to some degree. Um, you know, we're talking the 70s, the early 70s mm-hmm. when this happened. Let me age myself and get it out of the way. We're talking early 70s. And the protocol, first of all, the protocol for dealing with the injury itself was not developed to the right. degree it is now. Yes. And that if it had happened today, 
I don't know if the physical outcome would have even been the same. Mm-hmm. Also, I think the protocol for dealing with children in this situation is very different now. I think that the social workers and hospitals get involved now. They speak to the families. They support the children. Back then, there wasn't any of that. Right. Um, and I don't know that it was specifically avoided in my household. I just think none of the players, my father, relatives, whatever, I don't think they even knew better. Right. And there was no explanation. It's decades later that I learned really um, what her accident meant to her. Um, that I, I, and I'm still learning things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think at the time it was just, it was a whole different approach or lack of approach, however you want to look at it. Yeah, yeah. I think that had a lot to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to follow up with, and your point, um, you know, there's a lot of um, the way you present to the outside world when there's a crisis or a trauma under your roof, and yes. it, they don't match. And I think I, as you astutely stated, yearned for parity in that way. I yearned for the honesty. I yearned for it to be okay to be seen for what's really going on. Right. Um, but this happens in so many homes for so many different reasons. That's right. That's right. And it's it, it's always fascinating because I think sometimes it does take later years to understand and realize the impact of something that happened so long ago. You're just in it, and you're just, mm-hmm. as you said, you know, trying to survive and find the skills to cope. And... Um, and then later you start to reflect, and, of course, we have such a different perspective as adults than we do as children, and things start to become more clear. So mm-hmm. that, that can be a good thing. Um, Lisa, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to start uh, talking a little bit about the beginning of your career. All right. We'll be right back. Thank you. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. 
In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. I'm having a conversation today with Lisa Roth, and Lisa is the Vice President and Creative Director for CMH Label Group and also founder of Rockabye Baby. So we were getting the backstory, the first half of the show, and and learning about your life growing up. And um, I wanted to kind of jump right into how and and why you decided to become a nutritionist? Well, ain't that the question? <laughs> I will tell you, my career path has been anything but traditional. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with what we were talking about previously. I think after my mother's accident, a lot of the choices I made were based on finding approval and support not necessarily pursuing and discovering the things that I was um, interested in. Mm. However, I, um, you know, I grew up in a home with a doctor, and I'm sure um, a lot of homes with fathers and mothers who are doctors, they want nothing more than for one of their children to follow in their footsteps. Right. And when I went to college, I studied the life sciences, and I loved it. I took to it 100%. This thrilled my father to no end. He thought he was going to have a doctor on his hands. (laughs) (laughs) To turn the practice over to. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, given what happened to my family, just being very candid, I did not at that time have the wherewithal to pursue medical school. Mm -hmm. I think I was emotionally fatigued. I was lost and finding my way on my own. I could not commit to that. I had no desire to take up a chair in medical school. But I had a grandmother, my father's mother, who was really a pioneer um, in her private life um, in the concept of preventive medicine. This was a woman who came to the United States uh, via Ellis Island in the early 1900s. She was an immigrant from Eastern Europe. And she was very interested in nutrition. And she had an ongoing um, dialogue with food companies. She would write letters and ask questions if there was something she noticed about a food product. And we still have these letters. For example, she wrote, the Land Lakes Company, why is the butter more yellow this season? Wow. She wrote to the Cottage Cheese Company, why did you change from glass to plastic? She 
she wrote to Dr. Pepper several times trying to get to the bottom of what was in Dr. Pepper. (laughs) (laughs) She was um, way, way ahead of her time. Way ahead of her time. She was a very bright woman, but was working class, raising six children. Um, And if she had been born in later generations, I am certain she would have been a doctor. Mm. But I didn't grow up with her, and I didn't get to spend a lot of time with her, but the conversations I did have with her were very interesting to me. And I thought, you know what? I can use nutrition um, as a way to heal. But I have, so that's what I pursued. But I have to say that for me, nutrition was always less about teaching people how to eat and more about making fundamental change. Mm. Because if you want to get to someone's most fundamental issues, again, that theme, this is where I thrive, start talking about their relationship with food. It is a gateway to the most intimate place, which is where I like to go and where I think most change can happen. So I started a practice in Pasadena, which I held for 20 years, and, um, and part-time in New York for a number of years. And that's how all that happened. <laughs> that's so interesting that you, you were looking at that as a way to heal yourself. That, that's very, um, is not, that... not so well, everything is a way of healing ourselves, I believe. Mm-hmm. But to me, it was a, um, you know, an inroad for other people. Okay. Working with people who have eating disorders, who um, just want to lose weight for the prom, who, you know, have unhealthy relationship with food, to me, that's the surface. If you really want to make change in, in your body and your life, you have to go to the fundamental issues that are informing your eating choices. So it was really a gateway to getting to a, a deeper place. Yeah. Yes. With these people. Right, right. And, and it, yeah. Yeah, ahead. that's rewarding. I mean, that's really rewarding. Very. Yeah. To be able yeah. to help somebody on that level. Um, and an honor to uh, be trusted and um, and to know people are willing to share their, those intimacies. It's a lot like what you do. It's um, allowing people to tell their stories for the purpose of educating and enlightening. And to me, it's the most fascinating, wonderful, exciting way to learn. Mm, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, So 20 years as a nutritionist, and then let's talk about what, what opened the door for you into television production because you spent years working for the Discovery Channel and National Geographic. How did what was the precipitous for that, the change? That's a big big leap. You know, again, there was 
I seem to just stumble into my various careers. <laughs> I, I, um, 20 years of doing nutrition, it was gratifying, but it was a huge responsibility that, again, I felt honored to have, but ultimately exhausting. And in the end, I wanted a change. Mm-hmm. And I always loved telling stories, hearing stories. Here we are again, a theme. Mm-hmm. I loved documentary filmmaking. I had a very dear friend who had been working in documentary-style television for Discovery and National Geographic Networks for decades. She worked um, as executive producer. I told her about my desire, and she offered me a job as a segment producer for a new Discovery show. This was back in 1998. Okay. I had never done it before. I had no idea what it meant, but she was convinced that I would be great at given who I am and that it was easy and to just go for it. And she was executive producing the show. So I'd wow. show up at the studio where our offices are. I not only was starting a job that I had no insight into how to do it or what it was, but I was assigned the episode that was going to determine if the series was going to be picked up. Wow. And wow, no pressure, no pressure there. <laughs> no pressure. Trial wow. by yeah. fire. Oh, I love that and though that she she believed in you. She believed in me. Yeah. I jumped in and realized the reason she said it was easy is because she hadn't done the job in 20 years <laughs> right. and completely forgot what was involved in it. And luckily, I had her to go to and other people I knew in the industry. I was on that phone all day, every day, asking what this meant, asking where to find that, asking how to do this. Right. Oh, the learning curve. It's the worst part, right? Oh, my God. But it's like immersing yourself in a language. Mm-hmm. You don't know where you're going, what you're doing, or how to communicate, but eventually you're forced to learn, and and it's a wonderful way to learn in the end. It's just going through it is so difficult. So I did that, and then for the next four or five years, I did other jobs, documentary-style television, um, and really found some skills I didn't know I had, found the things I loved about it, and equally found the things I did not like about it. Um, I loved the talking to the subjects, finding the people whose stories we were going to tell, interviewing them, writing the script, um, setting up the shoot. The issue was once that was all done, it was handed over to the network to edit. And very often your vision was changed. Mm. And here you are beholden to these people who you bring into the limelight to tell their stories. I ended up, this is funny, working on a lot of medical shows. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I'm sure my father was thrilled. Right, Um, right. Yep. 
and I got to use my, you know, my education that way. But you bring these people into the limelight to tell their stories, and you feel very good about the story you're telling, and then it gets changed. And that was painful very often. Mm. It was grueling work, and I, I just, it wasn't good for this woman. I saw a lot of women, um, and this isn't a judgment, I totally understand and um, empathize, but to make it in that world back then, I think you had to do, a lot of women did their best imitation of a man at work. And And that's never good. That's never the way to go. Right. And it took its toll, and I didn't. I didn't, it wasn't working for Mm -hmm. me, Um, but I continued to do it, and then my father got sick, and he asked me to stop working um, to help take care of him, which I did for a year, Um, and he passed away, and I knew I wasn't going back to television, (laughs) so that was the career move um, from nutrition to television and on to the music world. Right, (laughs) right. So, well, here's one of the things. I think it's, um, when I have guests on the show, Lisa, often they have taken a lot of different paths. It's very rare that someone, you know, decides at a young age what they're going to do and be, go to school for that, and stay in that career. And I think it's we should always look at those changes and, and those opportunities as in a positive way, right? Rather than, you know, kind of things not working out, it's being open to new opportunities and taking those chances. So I love that about you. And um, I, you know, let's talk about you're, you're with CMH label now. How many years have you been with them? This month, 11 years. 11 years, okay. Hmm. And Wow. Is, right? <laughs> well, I'm Whenever tired. the number never makes sense, <laughs> you know, we just go hmm. along. Is, are you feeling as though you're in the place you belong? You know, I don't think I'll ever feel that way, but to me that's a gift. Um, this position has been amazing for me. Um, it has allowed me to discover um, skills I didn't know I had. Mm-hmm. It has allowed me to build on skills I knew I had but never got to use. Um, the environment is lovely and creative. Um, no complaints here, but I don't think I will ever be satisfied. I am a seeker. I. Mm want to always be better, do better, do different, do more, um, but that is not to belittle my being here. Right. Well, that's, you know, that is who you are. So what, what's kind of exciting is when you know you're that kind of person, um, it's sometimes fun to think about, you know, what may be down the road for me. And while you're you're successful now and and you know, the work that you're doing is enjoyable. You never know. Um, and, and actually, you can spe- do things simultaneously. That's right. You can. Um, so. so in your, you know, creating and growing brands, that that can be tough work. 
um, especially, you know, with the competition and in the music industry, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy. What is your approach? In other words, dealing with your team and dealing with clients, is there, do you have an approach, something that you find has been successful for you? Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, only I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> well, no. I, this has been a learning experience for me more than anything. Um, my approach is um, very much sort of my philosophy and how you want to approach people in general mm-hmm. with great regard and respect um, empathy and compassion, and most of all, vulnerability myself. Mm. And I, I consider myself a big-picture person. I'm really good at the big picture. Um, I can't create a spreadsheet or crunch numbers to save my life. <laughs> Nor can I. <laughs> but I'm very good at the big picture. Again, I'm very good at seeing what's not being shown. I'm really good at hearing what's not being said. Um, and I get to use those. Uh, I get to use my intuitive skills, my gut daily when it comes to interacting with the people I work with. Um, and I think that's sort of the key, the foundation um, to my approach Mm -hmm. and trying to um, make people feel valuable, remembering to acknowledge their successes. My tendency early on was to, like, move on to the next thing without acknowledging and um, sort of reveling in what we've accomplished yeah, and teaching the things that I value, attention to detail, not cutting corners, paying attention to every single thing and making it the best you can, even if it takes longer or costs a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow that these are all an answer to your question, which I so inarticulately presented. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, it you know what you really you're just being you. So if you're going into work inarticulate. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. You know what, Lisa, uh, listen, we don't know each other very well. This is the second time I've spoken to you and what I picked up on right away is your authenticity. You're just incredibly genuine and open and generous. And guess what? When you live your life that way, People want to work with you. You know, they trust you then. They respond positively. So that, I mean, to me, that's the best approach to to business or work or life is to really try to fully be yourself. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, And quite honestly, I, I don't think I've ever been hired on what I knew or learned I think it has been based specifically on the things you're talking about, how you relate, what yes. are called soft skills, right? Right. Your people skills. Your EQ, your your emotional your quotient. Emotional IQ, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. I wish it were more valued in the workplace. There's a ways to go for that still. Yeah, yeah, there are. Um, tell me what brings you the most joy other than music. 
peanut butter? (laughs) (laughs) You know what brings me the most joy is this, Um, and everybody who knows me knows this to be true. I love deep, meaningful connection and conversation. Mm. I love educating through my life experience, and I love asking questions and learning about other people. And the icing on the cake is deep, meaningful conversation over a great meal. Oh, that brings yes. me joy. That's the, <laughs> that is the truth. That's absolutely my number one as well. You know, outside of family, um, there's nothing I enjoy more. There's just always there's always a revelation when you have a conversation mm-hmm. like that, don't you think? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And family is a deep. Um, relationship. There's a lot of deep, meaningful conversation in family. So I put that up there too. Yeah. Um, Tell me what, do you have, whether you literally have a bucket list or not, is there something that you think about often that you would like to do um, at some point in your life that you haven't done yet? Yeah, I have a secret. You do? Oh, am I going <laughs> to? And I'm you... working on it. Yeah. And maybe if I put it out there, I will actually accomplish it. Okay, let's and, do it. And it's right in theme with what we're talking about. I love storytelling. And I don't know if you are familiar with The Moth on NPR. I'm not. The Moth is a, it's a, oh, it's fabulous. You have to look it up. Okay. It's storytelling events all over the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, where people tell their personal stories in 10 minutes. And some of them are funny. Some of them are poignant. It's my goal to do the boss someday. Wow. And I'm working on it. Okay. That seems like a task to me, to do it in 10 minutes. That's a very short period oh, of time. you know, some of them go shorter, some go longer, and you can always t- you can go to as many of these storytelling events as you want. We all have more than one 10-minute story. That's right. Is it and similar to a TED Talk? Similar, Okay. Yeah. 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 Good analogy, yes. Uh, good. I, I love that. I, I love that. Um, Tell me, all right, let's talk, we only have a few minutes left. I want to quickly talk about Rockabye Baby. How is it doing and what are the plans, um, you know, for the future of the company? Rockabye Baby is doing great um, and partially because it's not only a music series, but it is a baby product Mm -hmm. and babies are still going strong. It's a trend as far that's as we know, holding right? steadfast. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't died yet, the trend. And so there, uh, it's doing very well that way. Um, the music business, of course, is changing constantly. Yes, and, yes. Um, and so we're very lucky to have a music product that is also a baby product. And we're constantly looking at ways to expand Rockabye Baby in the baby world, mm-hmm. uh, merchandise, licensing, things like that. So that's always a challenge and fun and exciting to look at. Um, um, but as far as the music series, it's doing great. It is something that appeals to adults. That is who I had in mind when we were developing it. The adult um, 
something they could share with their child, something that addressed their world pre-baby, um, music that they love, um, and it's done great. Right. And so just to let the listeners know again, it's it, Rockabye Baby is a, a company that produces lullabies, and they are um, to the tune of, of classic rock music. Now, is it always going to stay in the rock genre? Or no, it you're, has you've expanded fact, out, right? It has expanded. It started as a rock, uh, a rock um, series, mm-hmm. but now we do lullaby. They're instrumental lullaby renditions of a lot of your pop, rock, and hip hop artists. Instrumental is key because there's no lyrics. Right. No harm, no foul. Right. <laughs> we don't <laughs> want to be teaching the, the babies anything too early. Right. Just the music that parents love and recognize. I think it can get old listening to children's the same children's songs over and over. Yes. Um, for the parent, and this is something that they can share with their baby that they also enjoy. And it's something dads relate to. It is a music, uh, I mean, a baby series that men like. Yeah, it's it's kind of a walk down memory lane as you're, you know, it's and you, as you said, you're you're enjoying it and your baby is enjoying it at the same time. It really right. was a a great idea, and and you came up with the idea, Lisa, just trying to be uh, or out and about buying gifts for for friends, right? That were having babies, and you felt a lack of of I choice. I did. Yeah, it was very selfish. Yeah, I no, was, it was looking a... for something I would want to receive. Right. And well, it wasn't there. Yeah, something with a sense of humor. A little irony, something that I would enjoy. Yeah. Well, it's a great idea. I'm glad you came up with it. I just shared it with my niece who just had her first baby. Lovely. And uh, for everyone listening, rockabybaby.com is where you can find uh, the music. Lisa, I thank you so much for joining me on this Memorial Day. I wish you continued success. Thank you. We did it. We did it. You did a beautiful (laughs) job. Yeah, and thank you to all the vets. I did want to say that. Good. Heartfelt. Very good. Okay, thanks, Lisa. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Have a great week.